All right, good to be with y'all again today. Can y'all hear me all right? All right? Coming through? Good deal. Well, uh, Michael and I did not discuss the content of our talks with each other. We just kind of wing it when we do these things. Uh, but it actually turns out that our talks here this morning pair together really well, maybe even too well. Um, because I'm going to talk about attraction some as well, but I'm going to talk about it within the context of marriage. But one thing Michael did that I think is really, really helpful for what I'm going to do here is Michael helped to provide uh, working definitions of masculinity and femininity, really in terms of the creation mandate, because God gives this mandate to the human race in the beginning, and the whole mandate, of course, belongs to the whole human race to rule over the earth, to subdue the earth, to have dominion, to multiply and fill the earth. That's the original creation mandate. That's the original purpose and mission of the human race. But within that mandate, while the whole mandate belongs to every individual, male or female, there is a kind of division of labor. And if you notice, Michael, as he was unpacking this, you can see that really there's a sense in which the dominion side of that mandate belongs especially to men, and the multiplication side of that mandate uh, belongs to women in a unique way. And I think that's a really helpful way to think about this. Um, women are drawn to men who can take dominion. Men are drawn to uh, women who are uh, obviously equipped to multiply and fill. Uh, and I think that's obviously uh, how God designed us. That's, that's how the human race goes forward. Uh, Michael talked about attraction uh, from the standpoint of dating. I'm going to talk about attraction some within the context of marriage. And, and towards the end of my talk, I'm going to get into this, especially as it relates to sex within marriage, and I'll especially be addressing um, husbands because uh, they're the ones who often end up with the most uh, complaints in, in, in this area. Um, but um, well, well, we'll get to that when we get there. Um, the good thing about speaking at a, at a conference with Michael Foster is that you know he's going to be the controversial one. <laughs> so um, I'm really kind of expecting to uh, just kind of sit there during the Q&A session uh, while Michael fields questions from all those crazy and salacious things he had to say. Every marriage, does, every, every marriage conference or every conference of this sort does need a sex talk and you kind of just had it, you're going to get it again here. Uh, but this may not be exactly what, you're, uh, what, what you would think of when you think of a sex talk. I want to deal with God's design for sex, at least some aspects of it. But we cannot understand God's design for sex without understanding God's design for the sexes. That's, that should be obviously true, right? Uh, you can't understand sex without understanding the sexes. We cannot understand our sexual design without grasping how each sex, male and female, comes with a built-in blueprint. How God designed men and women to complement and complete one another, uh, including sexually. Uh, the male body makes no sense apart from the female body and vice versa. It's obvious in every way we were made for each other. It's also not surprising that our culture's confusion about sex is matched by its confusion about the sexes. Those two things, again, stand or fall together. Now, one name for this confusion in our day is feminism. I have long thought that in front of the LGBTQIA plus string of letters, we need to add another letter, the letter F. Uh, because uh, feminism, I think, really is the uh, origin of this mess. The whole rest of that alphabet string really starts with F, with feminism. Uh, it's feminism that got us into this deep hole today. Now, blaming feminism is not the same as blaming women, certainly not. In fact, you could say that feminism arose as a response to the failure of men. Uh, I would say, just to give you one example of how this has worked out, feminism was the original transgender movement. Uh, because feminism from the beginning really has been about turning men into women and women into men. It's about blurring the distinctions between the genders. Feminism ends up pitting men against women and women against men. Feminism makes the claim that marriage is an oppressive institution. It really creates the so-called battle of the sexes. Uh, I used to say that feminism is just Marxism in a skirt. Uh, but then someone pointed out to me that feminists don't usually wear skirts, so. Uh, but, but it's still true. Uh, feminism is 
Marxism applied to the sexes. Marxism was originally about class oppression, how the upper class oppresses the lower classes. But now, now Marxism has worked its way into other areas of life. So for example, we have critical race theory, which looks at racial relationships in terms of oppression. So critical race theory uh, is Marxism applied to the races. Feminism is Marxism applied to the sexes. It looks at the male-female relationship in terms of an oppressor and an oppressee. Beginning especially in the 1960s, feminism walked hand in hand with the sexual revolution, separating sex from marriage and separating sex from procreation. Feminism helped to unleash a Pandora's box of sexual perversions. Feminism has aimed at a unisex or androgynous culture, the very kind of culture that would ultimately end up treating homosexuality as on par with heterosexuality. After all, if men and women are interchangeable socially, as feminism claims, why aren't they interchangeable sexually? If men and women are basically the same, why does it matter which one you pair with sexually? Let me give you a basic principle that we as Christians need to operate by in this discussion and in everything else that is happening in our culture. Uh, it, 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 happen, it comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, it is the saying, live not by lies. That's the basic principle we need to operate by as Christians in our culture and in these discussions. Live not by lies. Do not live by the lie that men and women are the same or that masculinity and femininity are just social constructs. Do not live by the lie that sex is meaningless or that we can give it any meaning we choose, making it casual, if that's what we want, or making it the most important transcendent thing in the world, if that's what we choose. Do not live by the lie that marriage is a fluid, malleable institution that we can redefine and rework how we choose, that it is, again, nothing more than a social construct. Do not live by the lie that no-fault divorce was a good and liberating development. Do not live by the lie that abortion is health care or that abortion is necessary for women to attain equality. Do not live by the lie that the fundamental divide in our culture is political between, say, right and left or Republican and Democrat, when in reality it is a spiritual divide between those who practice celibate chastity and marital fidelity versus those who practice sexual degeneracy and perversion. Sex and a sex ethic is at the foundation of every society, every civilization. And the basic line running through our culture today is between those who understand marriage and sex as sacred and designed to symbolize the Christ-Church relationship and those who do not. Again, those who think we can give these things any meaning we choose. Live not by lies. The problem is that in the church we have been living by certain lies that undermine happiness in marriage, that make marriage harder. And these are lies about sex and about the sexes. And it's obvious they are lies because they are contrary to the way God made us, contrary to what we can observe about male and female nature if we're paying attention, uh, contrary to what we find in Scripture. In many cases, what is being taught in many churches today is the exact opposite of the truth, the exact opposite of what needs to be taught. The lies we believe in the church are often just as blatantly wrong as the lies told in the culture. And these lies make us all losers. See, men and women will either both win or both lose together. You can't have one sex win when the other sex loses. This is why the whole battle of the sexes thing is so misguided. Uh, men and women stand or fall together. Think about this. Can Jesus win if the church loses? Or can the church win if Jesus loses? No, obviously not. We're all in this together, men and women. We will stand or fall together. We will win or lose together. Together, we must reject lies and live by the truth. Let me start with this lie because uh, I can build a lot off of it, and it gets repeated constantly. Masculinity is toxic. How many of you have heard that one? That's one that gets repeated again and again. That's become a mantra uh, in the culture. Right up there with smash the patriarchy, you hear masculinity is toxic. Now, the reason this lie often gets traction is because there are men who are toxic. 
But they are toxic not because of their masculinity. It's not their masculinity that makes them toxic. It's the absence of masculinity or the distortion or perversion of masculinity that makes them toxic. But many in our culture will claim that masculinity itself is the problem. Uh, just a few years back, the American Psychological Association declared masculinity toxic, masculinity harmful, and basically spelled out these conventional, traditional male traits, like the ones that, that Michael was talking about, these conventional male traits, uh, and basically demonized them, pathologized them. Uh, basically, they said traditional men are sexist and oppressive. They harm themselves and they harm others. And the thing is, what I've noticed is that in the church, there are many who will say, oh no, masculinity is not toxic. But then anytime real masculinity shows up, they treat it like it is toxic. Again, uh, they have bought into the lie. Now, I can expose this as a lie. If masculinity were really toxic, then we would expect kids with minimal exposure to it would do better, right? I mean, nobody wants their kids exposed to toxins. But what happens when Say kids don't have a father, when kids don't have a dad in the home. Kids without a father, without a strong, permanent, masculine presence in the home, are actually more likely to be abused. You wouldn't have guessed that with this mantra, masculinity is toxic, but that's the reality. Kids who do not have a father in the home are actually less safe than those who do. And actually, when you look at this in every possible statistical way, whether you're talking about grades or crime or drugs or whatever category you want to name, kids who do not have that permanent masculine presence of a father in the home do worse. The absence of a father in the home is hugely detrimental. But if masculinity is toxic, you would think kids would be better off without a dad. They'd be better off in a female-dominated environment. But actually, as it turns out, kids do best when they receive the masculine paternal love of a father combined with the feminine maternal love of a mother. Kids need both kinds of love poured into them to really thrive. So kids actually benefit. They're better off with a strong masculine presence in their lives. But you know who else is better off with a strong masculine presence in their lives? Women. Women are better off as well, because no matter how much traditional masculinity gets demonized, traditional masculinity is still attractive to women. It's still good for women. Women cannot flourish without this masculine presence in their lives. And we see this especially in marriage. Again, live not by lies. So here's the truth. It's a truth you need to know. What drives attraction between men and women is the polarity of masculinity and femininity. Michael unpacked that for dating. I want to unpack it for marriage. The masculine and the feminine bond together. They are drawn to one another. But when masculinity in men is diminished because they're told masculinity is toxic, and when femininity in women is diminished because women are trying to fulfill traditional masculine roles, either because they're told they need to or because they sense an absence, a, a void of masculinity, and they want to fill that void, when men are feminized and when women are masculinized, the bond between men and women is weakened. Now, this is exactly what we have been doing for more than a generation. And what is the result? What do we see around us? What do the statistics tell us? Well, we've got a low marriage rate, a high divorce rate, and a low birth rate. We've got signs of a civilizational sickness, maybe even a civilizational suicide. What happens in a unisex society? There is a dearth of marriageable men and marriageable women. And those who do get married find that the bond between them is much weaker. We have weakened those very bonds that would draw men and women and bind them together. I want to talk about the problems this has created in marriage. You know, I've been a pastor for a good long while now. I've done a lot of marriage counseling uh, over the years, and I can tell you that one of the biggest problems that any pastor will face in counseling couples about their marriage is the reality of sexless marriages or low-sex marriages. This is a significant problem. People get married, and uh, over time, sometimes actually very soon, you'd be surprised how quickly this can happen in some marriages, but over time, uh, they drift towards a kind of sexlessness uh, where their marriages just don't have the same spark, the same chemistry that they once did. And I want to help you understand that problem. When you tie the knot 
in marriage. You want to tie it tight. When you get married, you want to bind to your spouse and stay binded tightly to your spouse. You want a good, strong, healthy marriage. And in almost every case, that's going to require an enjoyable, healthy, vibrant sex life between the husband and the wife. Almost impossible to have a good marriage without a good sex life. They go together. Not saying that sex is the only ingredient in a good marriage, but it's one of the key ingredients. But many marriages, including many Christian marriages, are failing in just this area. Many married Christian men lead lives of quiet desperation. This is one of those problems nobody wants to talk about. They're tortured by the fact that their wives withhold sex from them. And women are getting unhappier too. Surveys of female happiness suggest that the more liberated women become, the more miserable they are. The more the goals of feminism are realized, the more unhappy women are. The Federalist just did an article on this in the last week. Scott Yenner has written on this extensively. Uh, here, here's what uh, the article from the Federalist said. I'll just read you a little piece of it. The data says that increased gender equality correlates with female unhappiness. Couples, and this is the contrast then, couples with traditional gender roles also appear to have more sex, according to several studies, while egalitarian or equalitarian relationships tend toward roommate-like behavior or sibling-like tonality in the relationship that undermines sexual desire. So let's talk about sex and sexual attraction within marriage. First, a couple qualifications here. I always make these qualifications when I teach on this kind of thing. Understand that premarital sexual sin is an issue that will impact sex within your marriage. Uh, I'm not going to discuss that here. I'm going to bracket that out uh, for now. But that is an issue that does need to be addressed because any premarital sexual sin, premarital sexual baggage that you bring into your marriage will impact sex within your marriage. It's something that has to be dealt with. It doesn't doom you, but it does have to be dealt with and addressed within your marriage. Also, egregious sin within a marriage, like adultery or abuse, are special situations that have to be dealt with on their own. So we can bracket those out as well. I'm not trying to address those situations here. Obviously, every marriage is different. Every situation is different. I'm not trying to cover every conceivable situation, but I want to give you the big picture here of what's happening. The Bible addresses marital sexuality at length in several places. So, for example, we've got Song of Solomon, which is, among other things, a book-length celebration of marital sex. Are there symbolic dimensions to the book, perhaps even allegorical dimensions to the book? I wouldn't object to that. But in a very basic way, it is a book-length celebration of marital sex between a man and a woman. Proverbs 5, you've heard referenced already, commends sexual enjoyment uh, within marriage. Uh, you've got uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 that I think are also very relevant here. In 1 Corinthians 6, at the end of the chapter, Paul is dealing with immoral sex. At the beginning of chapter 7, he's dealing with marital sex. Ignore that chapter break. It's part of a seamless argument where he moves from the wrong kind of sex to the right kind of sex. The end of chapter 6 tells us what Paul is against when it comes to sex. The beginning of chapter 7 tells us what, is, what Paul is for when it comes to sex. In chapter 6, Paul is addressing extramarital sex. In chapter 7, Paul addresses marital sex. In chapter 6, Paul addresses the problem of sex with prostitutes. In chapter 7, Paul addresses the problem of sexless marriages. In chapter 6, Paul says your body belongs to the Lord. In chapter 7, Paul says your body belongs to your spouse. Chapter 6 is about how some failed to resist sexual temptation and fell into fornication. Chapter 7 is about how God provides an answer to sexual temptation in marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says, do not deprive each other in your marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is about our duty to pursue sexual holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is about our duty to provide sexual fulfillment for our spouse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5 is really the key text here. It really gives the biblical rule for sex in marriage. Paul says to husbands and wives, speaking about sex, do not deprive one another except by mutual consent for a limited time to devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. The Bible here is amazingly practical. In fact, what's really interesting to me is that at the end of chapter 6, Paul has just invested sex with the highest possible meaning. There's a kind of transcendent purpose to sex. 
where, where sex symbolizes the union that the believer has with Christ. That, that one flesh union between a man and a woman symbolizes the union that the church has with Christ. Paul has just dealt with that at the end of chapter 6. Then Paul turns right around and gives the most practical, you could say, earthy, mundane advice possible about sex within marriage. Now, put all this together, what do you have? God's plan for sex includes no sex before marriage and lots of sex in marriage. Can I get an amen? Thank you. God's plan for sex includes no sex before marriage and lots of sex in marriage. God's plan is for us to refrain from sex before marriage and then to be, for lack of a better term, sexually available to our spouses in marriage. But you know what? Satan has a plan for sex as well. And he wants you to have lots of sex before marriage and then no sex within marriage. Satan loves a sexless marriage just as much as he loves fornication. Here's the problem. When it comes to God's plan for sex, the church really has no hesitation in telling people, hey, no sex before marriage. No sex before marriage. But what happens when there's no sex in a marriage? The church doesn't really talk about that as much, at least not from what I've seen church has a lot more to say about fornication, sex before marriage, than it does this problem of sexlessness within marriage, the, the 1 Corinthians 7, 5 issue. So I want to address this here, but I don't want to do so just by stressing what 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says. We could frame this in terms of 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says do not deprive or do not defraud your spouse by withholding sex, and so it is your duty, it is an obligation for you to have sex within marriage. We could look at it that way, uh, and, and I think there's, helpful, there's something helpful about looking at it that way because it, it kind of pushes back against the view that so many have today that feelings are everything, feelings are my authority, I'm only going to do what I feel like, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says you do have a duty and obligation to your spouse. Your spouse has a right to, uh, to you sexually. Uh, but I don't want to go down that path. If that's a path that you're interested in, perhaps in Q&A we can get into that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 5 teaches that if you are married, you are responsible for your, your spouse's sexual fulfillment. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. You are not responsible for your spouse's sexual sin. That is on them. But again, you are responsible to be sexually available, sexually thoughtful, sexually responsive, sexually ready and willing, unless... Paul says, unless you have both agreed to fast from sex for a season, just like you might fast from food, you might fast from sex for a season, if you mutually agree upon that, if you mutually consent to it. But even then, Paul gives a warning. He says, don't go too long before coming together again because Satan will tempt you and expose your lack of self-control. Now, just a side note here. If you just take 1 Corinthians 7, 5 at, side, at face value, it might look like the only reason a couple would ever have for refraining from sex within marriage would be if they're committing themselves to a time of prayer. I don't think Paul's trying to give an exhaustive list here of times when a couple could legitimately refrain from sex. For example, health concerns or after the birth of a child, we, we could have, you know, that'd be another discussion to have. But what Paul is saying here is that withholding sex in marriage is a form of unjust deprivation. It is even defrauding your spouse. Withholding sex to punish your spouse or manipulate your spouse or control your spouse or just because you're lazy and don't feel like it, that is forbidden. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 forbids weaponizing sex so you can get your way. And I have actually seen wives in particular do this, uh, withhold sex uh, as a way of, of, of using sex as leverage in their marriage to get their way. Well, you can see how that would undo the whole authority structure of marriage where God has set it up, where the man is the head and the woman is to submit, and then she withholds sex and basically says, I won't have sex with you unless you give me what I want, unless we do what I say we should do. Well, you can see how that just subverts the whole authority structure in marriage. It, 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 given what Paul says in Ephesians 5, he has to say what he says here in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 to preserve that authority structure. But here's the question I'd rather deal with. 
Why do some Christian marriages struggle to fulfill 1 Corinthians 7.5? You might think, oh, this sounds great. You know, talk to uh, uh, an engaged couple that is, uh, where they're saving themselves for marriage, and they say, oh yeah, we can't wait to have sex. We can't wait to fulfill 1 Corinthians 7.5. But then talk to couples after they've been married for a few years. For a lot of couples, uh, we don't even touch each other anymore. Well, why is that? Why does this command become so hard for some spouses to keep? What are some obstacles to fulfilling 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5? You want marriage to be easy. I talked about that last night. Okay, well, you want sex within marriage to be easy as well, right? Uh, so uh, there, there are many reasons why 1 Corinthians 7, 5 might be difficult for a married couple to obey. But I want to focus on one here that I think is highly significant. And again, here you have to go back to what I said earlier, what Michael said uh, in his talk. It is polarity that drives attraction. The masculine attracts the feminine, and the feminine attracts the masculine. Almost all problems in marriage, and especially almost all sexual problems in marriage, are due to distortions of masculinity and femininity. The man isn't sufficiently masculine, the woman isn't sufficiently masculine, or there is some warping of his masculinity or some warping of her femininity. I think the, the, the biggest issue we have is when there's simply a, a, a diminishing of masculinity and femininity and a blurring of these things within the marriage. What happens when a man is demasculinized, when a man is functionally castrated? What happens when a woman senses that her man is not leading well, and so she tries to fill that void of leadership and masculinizes herself? Let me take this one step further. Think about what feminism has done to men in our culture. Feminism has been saying men need to become more like women. Men have been told again and again, you need to be more emotional, you need to be more vulnerable, you need to be more emotionally sensitive, you need to get in touch with your feelings. Okay, now as a man, I resent that, okay? Uh, as a man, I do have feelings. Uh, for example, I feel hungry at least three times a day, <laughs> and I'm, I'm in touch with at least some of my feelings. The reality is some men do fall into a kind of unhealthy stoicism. Uh, I think the Psalter can help us here. Uh, the Psalter shows us there are masculine ways to be emotionally expressive. They are different, different uh, from uh, feminine forms of emotional expressiveness, but they are real. David, uh, the sweet psalmist of Israel, shows us masculine ways. I don't think anybody would uh, doubt David's masculinity. He shows us there are masculine ways to be emotionally expressive. Of course, Jesus was emotionally expressive as well. Jesus laughed and joked. Jesus uh, could weep. Uh, he, was, he could get angry. He was emotionally expressive as well. But we need to understand there are reasons why God has made the male more compartmentalized than the female. And this is just a matter of basic biology as well as something that you could derive from um, observation about human life or observation from, uh, from the scripture. The male brain's more compartmentalized, the female brain more webbed or networked. Why would God give men brains that are more compartmentalized so men can compartmentalize their feelings more than women? Well, for one thing, it's because men are called to do certain things that require their emotions to be suppressed in the moment. Men have uh, always needed to be able to hold their emotions in check so they could endure long hours of difficult and dangerous work in the mines or on the ship or on the battlefield. Uh, and just as a side note here, um, you know, one of the things about the, the whole claim that masculinity is toxic and we need to soften men and feminize men, I think there's this myth that, well, now the world has become a safe place and we don't need that old-fashioned toxic masculinity anymore. Don't fall for that lie. Don't fall for the lie that World War II will be the last world war ever. To make men softer is to make the world more dangerous, not less. There will come a day when we will need men to be men, and the myth of toxic masculinity will be exposed. What was viewed as toxic by so many feminists will suddenly become necessary to survival. Michael talked about this, how a good man is a dangerous man. That's exactly right. Making men softer is the societal equivalent of defunding the police. To make men soft is to disarm a society, which then invites aggression from others. Demasculize your men. You're making yourself easy, uh, an easy target, easy to get picked on. 
Eroding masculinity by feminizing men has another impact, and this is what we're really interested in here. Women are simply not as attracted to men who project weakness, men who are towardly or indecisive. Women are generally not attracted to a man they could beat arm wrestling. Just a fact. Uh, it's not attractive in a man when there is a bump in the night, some kind of noise in the night, and the husband is too scared to get out of bed to go check and see what it is, and so his wife has to do that. That's not an attractive quality uh, in a man. The same masculine qualities that are necessary to build and guard civilization are necessary to build and maintain civilization. I'm sorry, I, I, I said this wrong. The same qualities that are necessary to build and guard civilization are necessary to build and maintain sexual attraction. And if you reflect on that, you can see why God might have designed the world to work that way. So men need emotional control because they're called to, to do certain things that require compartmentalizing emotions. Further, men who lack emotional control cannot lead well. They tend to be indecisive. They tend to be more passive. They tend to be less uh, focused on accomplishing their mission, less confident. Overly emotional men are not admired by women. They're not seen as heroic or worthy of respect. Such men have compromised their ability to lead. And when men do not lead well, what happens? Well, women get anxious. And an anxious woman will tend to be frigid in the bedroom. One reason why a lot of marriages become rather sexless is because the wife's anxiety kills attraction. See, wives want their husbands to be able to handle things. It is attractive when they can. When a man can't be decisive, when he cannot bring order out of the chaos of life, that is a problem for her, and she senses it acutely. Women need their husbands to bring order, to provide vision and direction, not micromanaging her, obviously, not controlling every detail of her life. She can manage a lot on her own. But she needs him to set the tone, the pace, to establish the big picture, to make her decision-making easier. When husbands fail to assert themselves, wives get anxious, and they start to try to control things themselves to fill that void. And one thing that happens is sometimes she nags, and a nagging wife's not very attractive to a husband. But men, you need to understand, nagging, you know, nagging might just be her sin and there might not be anything you've done to provoke it. But nagging is very often a sign that she does not trust your leadership. She does not trust you to step up and take responsibility. And so what should you do if you find yourself with a nagging wife? Proverbs talks about this, what a, what a pain it is to live with a nagging wife. What should you do, men? I would suggest making yourself unnaggable. And the way you do that, the way you make yourself immune to nagging is by taking responsibility, getting the job done. Don't complain about things. Don't complain about what you have to do. Just do it. She needs you to be full of masculine energy and to assert yourself. She needs you to lead. She needs you to lead her outside of the bedroom so then you can lead her inside the bedroom as well. But again, she can't follow you if you're not going anywhere. If you allow your masculinity to be diminished, she will feel the need to be more masculine herself, and that will kill sexual attraction between you. A lot of women today, record numbers of women, uh, are on anxiety medication, and uh, in reality what they need is not a pill, but a better husband. In reality what they need is not anxiety medication, but a stronger, more competent, and capable husband. I'm not saying that's every case. I'm not making a, a universal statement here. But look, over-medicating our women, the Rolling Stones identified that as a problem back in about, what, 1966, maybe? Mother's Little Helper, okay? People have recognized this is a problem for a long time. I think a lot of that anxiety, uh, the way to deal with it is not through pills, uh, but through more competent husbands, better men. She needs you men, you husbands. She needs you to be the calm, collected leader in a crisis or a hardship. A husband needs to maintain frame. That's what we call it. When, when a man leads his wife well, we call that maintaining frame, holding frame. And that puts her at ease. Think about this. Our, our whole metaphor this weekend is building a house together. So think about building this house. Men, you are the roof and you are the walls of this house. You know, you're building on the foundation that is Christ. You're the roof and the walls to provide shelter and protection. She's the Shekinah glory that's going to fill the house. But think about this. What do we call those vertical pieces of wood that hold up the house in the walls? 
We call them studs. Okay? Men, she needs you to be a stud. Okay? We use that word in more than one way. Okay, but that's, that's what we call the wood that holds up the house, that frames the house. We call those pieces of wood studs. That's what men are supposed to be. We're supposed to hold the house up in this way. We're supposed to maintain frame. Men, you are to be the lighthouse in the midst of the storm. You are to be the banks that hold the rushing river in place. In Psalm 45, a wedding psalm, Psalm 45 is a wedding liturgy. What's interesting to me is that um, the, the, psalm is, the, the, the psalms are full of passages that deal with men and women. And Psalm 45 is probably the place in the Bible where sexual stereotypes are most on display. Like if you were to ask, does the Bible ever deal in sexual stereotypes? There are a lot of places where this is true. But Psalm 45 is the epitome of this, and it is a wedding liturgy. Psalm 45. And in Psalm 45, the woman, the bride, is praised for her inner and outer beauty. And the man is praised for his inner and outer strength. So think about all those things Michael was talking about with, you know, with dating and what you're looking for and someone. Well, Psalm 45 is where it comes together because now here's the wedding and you have this beautiful woman, beautiful inside and out, and this strong man, strong inside and out, and now they're coming together and being joined and being made one flesh. Man, I think another passage that can really help you here is 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter tells men to live with their wives with understanding, honoring her as the weaker vessel. What does it mean for her to be the weaker vessel? This is not a sign that the Bible is sexist. It's a, it's a sign that the Bible is realistic, that the Bible is in touch with reality, with the way God made us. Why is the woman called the weaker vessel? This is not an insult to her at all. Uh, in fact, actually, it's, it's, I think it's a... Well, I'll just tell you what I think it means. Why does, why does Peter call the woman the weaker vessel? Well, physically, she's weaker. That's obvious. Uh, I think her role puts her in a position of greater vulnerability. There's a kind of weakness in that. Her role is the one who, well, especially who gets pregnant and then who has to care for the newborn baby, makes her weaker, makes her more vulnerable. Uh, you could say she is emotionally weaker, uh, emotionally more sensitive or more fragile. That's not a bad thing, though. That's not a negative judgment at all. A vase is weaker than a hammer, but that doesn't make the vase bad. It just makes the vase different. And the weakness of the vase serves its purpose well, whereas the strength of the hammer serves its purpose well. They each have their own purpose. One's stronger, one's weaker, but they're good in their own way. But here's the thing. If she is the weaker vessel, men, what must you be? You must be the stronger vessel. And what I've noticed over the years in counseling married couples is that sexless marriages tend to have two weaker vessels. There is no masculine strength in the relationship, and so, again, attraction wanes, and his lack of masculinity leaves her feeling unprotected, anxious, vulnerable. Uh, she might masculinize herself to try to compensate. She might nag him to try to compensate, but of course, those things are not effective or satisfying. They just make things worse. Again, when Peter calls the woman the weaker vessel, what is he saying? He's saying, look, Husbands, you need to understand your wife and who she is, and what her position is, and what her role is. Wives want to see comfort and strength and calmness in their husbands, really the same way the church seeks those things from Christ. There's an analogy there. Uh, man, God gave you broader shoulders so that you can help bear her burdens. Don't add to her burdens. Relieve her burdens. If you're not leading her in all of life, again, you're not going to be able to lead her in the bedroom. You need to lead from a position of strength. You need the polarity of a stronger and weaker vessel in the marriage to generate that spark of attraction. And men understand, you can't fake this. You want to have her confidence. Uh, you want her to have confidence in you. And the only way to, to have that confidence is if you are growing in competency. Confidence arises from competency. You need to be maturing. You need to have skills. You need to show you are a self-controlled and trustworthy man. You need to be productive. A high-value man is going to be dominion-oriented. A, a man who is attractive to his wife is going to be a dominion-oriented man. Weak men, cowardly men, lazy men do not inspire or attract women. I mean, young women don't go looking for their future husbands in the unemployment line. Okay, they don't. And, and, and wives don't want to see that either. 
So, men, you need to understand this. <clears throat> and men, you need to understand this weakness, and, and, and when you are not the stronger vessel, um, that creates anxiety in your wife. Again, this anxiety is a desire killer. And men, you need, you need to understand, women have been anxious about men going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam stood by passively and watched as the serpent deceived his bride. He failed to teach her. He failed to guard her. He failed to protect her. He failed to take responsibility for her. And women have been anxious about men ever since. And understandably so. Women have a deep memory of Adam's betrayal. And so men, if your wife has a hard time trusting you, you may have added to the problem with your own failings. You almost certainly have. But you need to understand the woman's mistrust of the man goes back a lot further. This was an issue long before you got married. It is primordial. Okay? Because God made her a woman, she wants to trust you. God made the woman to crave the leadership of a strong, competent, godly man. But because of the fall, she's not quite sure she can trust you. And so what you have to do is prove yourself a man again and again and again. Jesus is the ultimate anxiety reliever, of course, but husbands understand you are the only man on the planet who can relieve your wife's anxieties in the way she needs them relieved. Husbands, 1 Peter 3 tells you to live with your wife in understanding. You have to understand women. The Bible does not give us this view that women are a mystery that cannot be understood. Now, it is true. Solomon says in Proverbs that the way of a man with a maiden uh, is one of the great mysteries of the world. So there is a lot, there is much here that is mysterious. But Peter says to men, understand your wife. Live with her in an understanding way. Women can be understood. Don't just throw your hands up and say, you know, who could ever figure women out? Peter says to live with your wife with understanding. And a big part of understanding your wife is understanding her anxieties, understanding what it means for her to be the weaker vessel. Well, what are some ways you can cut through her anxieties? Here's one thing I would suggest. There's a lot of things. This will actually tie in a little bit with what Michael said, but... Uh, I actually picked up this idea from Edwin Friedman in his book, Failure of Nerve, which is not a Christian book, but I would still recommend that all husbands read it. One thing that Friedman says that all leaders should do is maintain a sense of humor. Man, I would tell you, one of the ways you can cut through your wife's anxieties is to make your wife laugh. Nothing cuts through anxiety so much as humor. And so I would tell you, men, develop your sense of humor. Flirt with your wife playfully tease her. These kind of things will put her at ease. One thing I found, again, in counseling couples over the years, dysfunctional marriages, sexless marriages are way too serious. The couple quit having fun a long time ago, and they are utterly serious all the time. They are nothing but serious. The fun and the laughter has been sucked out of the relationship. So then one of the ways you need to lead your wife is to lead her in laughter. Nothing will do more to put your wife at ease. If she sees you relaxed and laughing and teasing and flirting her, even or perhaps especially in the midst of a hard time, eventually she'll come around. She'll figure, well, if he's not too worried, I guess I shouldn't be either. If he can laugh, I guess I can too. If he's relaxed, I guess I should be relaxed as well. And again, the analogy here is, is, is Christ and the church. This is exactly what God has done for his people. I'll grant you the crucifixion was deadly serious. God takes our sin seriously, and Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his bride. But the resurrection is really God's joke at the devil's expense. God pulled the rug right out from under Satan. Psalm 2 says, our God is in the heavens. Our God who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs with a holy laughter. Jesus laughs, and so his bride Last. Jesus is not anxious, and so his bride doesn't need to be anxious. Jesus knows how to laugh. In fact, it's interesting. I, I, would, I think we miss this in the Gospels. I would tell you to go read a book like uh, Elton Trueblood's book, The Humor of Christ. There's a, there was another book along these same lines that the title escapes me right now, but uh, that deal with Christ's sense of humor in the Gospels. Jesus is always cracking jokes with his disciples. And especially when things get really, really tense, Jesus will say something funny. Now, we miss it because we read the gospel so seriously and sometimes out of context. But in context, Jesus is quite the comedian. He's constantly got people laughing. And that's why everywhere Jesus goes, he's the life of the party. 
I think C.S. Lewis got this too. This is how leadership works, and this is great for, for husbands. This is how leadership works in Narnia. Think of the ideal Narnian king as Lewis describes him. It's really King Loon in the book The Horse and His Boy, and this is how King Loon is described. This is how kingship or leadership is described. This is how it goes. So what Lewis wrote. This is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as there must be now and then, to laugh louder over a scantier meal than any other in your land. The king's job is to lead in laughter, even in hard times, perhaps especially in hard times. Husbands, this is how you are to lead your wife as well. I think most men could solve 80% of their marriage problems if they just teased their wives more, if they flirted with their wives more. I think most men could solve 80% of their marriage problems just by making her laugh once or twice every day. Husbands, this is your calling. First in, last out, laughing loudest. That's what it means, means to be a man, to be a husband, to be a head, to be the king of your home. Or as one of your own prophets has said, Blake Shelton, the country singer, in his wonderfully pro-marriage song, I'll Name the Dogs. He's got a line in there. He says, you be the pretty, I'll be the funny. And that's it. She'll be the pretty one. She'll be the glorious one. And he'll be the funny one. He'll make her laugh. Or the way the book of Proverbs puts it, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Enjoy life with her. Laugh with her. Not everything is deadly serious. First in, last out, laughing loudest. This is what you see if you want to uh, tie the knot tight. It's what you need to see if you want to tie the knot of marriage good and tight. If you want to have a sexually vibrant relationship with your spouse, this is what you need to see. So here's my punchline for the weekend. If you only remember one thing I say this whole weekend, let it be this. Headship and respect are not only the key to a peaceful marriage, and I will say this, headship and respect are the key to a peaceful marriage because that removes any hint of a power struggle within marriage. But this is the key thing. This is the punchline. Headship and respect. The man's headship and the wife's respect. Headship and respect are erotic necessities. Headship and respect are romantic necessities. There is no romance without headship and respect. Romance will die without them. Eros will die without them. Headship and respect are essential in ingredients in sexual arousal, in sexual attraction. Having masculine and feminine polarity, having masculine energy and feminine glory, masculine initiative and female responsiveness, masculine responsibility and female obedience. These are the keys to a strong marriage, and these are the keys to a strong sexual relationship within the marriage. And when you see that, when you get that, 1 Corinthians 7.5 is not so daunting. It's not so hard to obey 1 Corinthians 7.5 when you have a marriage with strong polarity, with headship and respect. It is androgyny more than anything else that kills sexual attraction. Polarity creates it. I want to end with this. Um, I lived here in Austin years ago. Uh, Jenny and I lived here back in the late 90s and early 2000s and had, had just a, uh, a wonderful time uh, living here in Austin. Uh, when I lived here in Austin, I worked for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. I was on staff there. And uh, I used to go to the library. It's called the Stitt Library back then. The, the library on the campus of Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. It was PCUSA Seminary, so a very liberal. In fact, I don't think I ever saw a male student on campus the whole time I was there, so that tells you uh, what was going on there. But um, that seminary was founded by Robert Louis Dabney. Uh, some of you may know Dabney's name. Dabney was a uh, 19th century pastor and seminary teacher, first in Virginia. Uh, actually, during the war, he was Stonewall Jackson's chaplain. And then after the South... Uh, lost. He fled Virginia and moved to Texas, 
And he helped, it's actually, it's ironic, he actually helped to found the philosophy department at the University of Texas, which is where I did graduate school in the philosophy department uh, at Texas. And he also founded the Presbyterian Seminary here. And uh, obviously these institutions have abandoned his legacy, but he was one of the great Presbyterian theologians of his era, and in many ways he was a prophet. Uh, when I would go and study at uh, Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, they actually, I'm sure they were embarrassed by all kinds of things about Dabney, but they had a big portrait of Dabney, and then they had a, a glass case that uh, housed some of, his, some of the books from his personal library. And so I would go sit there and do my studying right there under the watchful gaze of Dabney with his own you know, books from his personal library right there beside me. Well, why do I bring Dabney up? Well, everything that I have told you about attraction, really everything you've heard from Michael about attraction as well, Robert Louis Dabney said 150 years ago. He saw what the rising feminist movement would do to relations between men and women, what this rising feminist movement would do to sexual attraction between men and women. I'm going to modernize his language here for you just so you can understand it a little bit better, but I want to read to you what he wrote. Listen to Robert Louis Dabney. This was written, I want to say, in the 1870s, maybe 1880s. The feminist movement will mean the abolition of all permanent marriage ties. Feminism's going to weaken marriage. Mrs. Caddy Stanton, this was a prominent feminist, a leading feminist of Dabney's day. Mrs. Caddy Stanton holds that women's bondage is not truly dissolved until the marriage bond is annulled. She's thoroughly consistent. Some hoodwinked advocates of her revolution may be blind to the sequence, but it is inevitable. It must follow. The unsexed woman, that is, the masculinized woman, can never inspire in a man that true affection on which marriage should be founded. Men will doubtless still be sensual, but it is simply impossible that they could desire these masculinized women for the pure and sacred role of wife. And let every woman ask herself, would she choose as the object of her affection, of her desire, an unsexed, an unsexed androgynous, effeminate man? No, no more than the man can be drawn to the masculinized woman. Was Dabney a prophet? Well, you be the judge. Uh, I think he was exactly right. Marriage has been deeply wounded, uh, if not killed, in our culture because of this feminist movement. This feminist movement that has sought to produce a unisex androgynous culture kills desire. It weakens the bond between men and women. Masculinized women and feminized men are not drawn to each other. The bond between them is weak. Because we have lived the lie that men and women are not that different or should not be that different, our marriages are fragile. Let's reject these lies. Men reject effeminacy. Women reject feminism. Men, prove yourself to be a man and build a house with the wife of your youth as you rejoice with her, as you rejoice in her. And women, embrace your femininity. Embrace your femininity and respect your husband, admire your husband, obey your husband, submit to your husband, and in this way we can tie the knot tight. Amen. Thank you.